Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 220. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 220 you're listening to. My guest today is Butch Vig. Butch, of course, is well known for his work with Nirvana on the Nevermind record, Smashing Pumpkins on Gish and Siamese Dream. But he's also known for his work with other artists, including Green Day, Foo Fighters, Freddie Johnston, L7, Sonic Youth, Killdozer, Urge Overkill. He's done a lot of remix work for Against Me, The Cult, Depeche Mode, U2, Michael Penn, Limp Biscuit, Alanis Morissette, the list goes on. And of course, he is well known for his contributions and work with his own band, Garbage. Had a great conversation with Butch, and I very much look forward to having you hear this today. So, Butch Vig, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So let's revisit the topic of networking, which we have talked about before, but I also want to bring it up again and also talk about reconnecting with old connections. Recently, I've been spending some time really trying to get out in my community and reaching out not only for interviews with people in person, but also to just have coffee, breakfasts, beers, you know, get together outside of my little bubble here in Lafayette and meet up with people I know and people, new people, of course. And it's very easy, of course, as we all know, to stay buried in our homes, behind our computers, using social media as our only form of outreach. I'm guilty of it. I know you are. We all are, right? So just want to encourage you to get out of the house, put it in your calendar, call people up, reach out, say, you know, let's do coffee, beers, breakfast, lunch, dinner, whatever it is, and just go and hang out. There doesn't always have to be an agenda behind these these networking opportunities. You know, you don't necessarily have to look at it as a goal-oriented thing of, hey, by the end of this meeting, I need to have business. That's that's not really the entire point. The point is, is to grow your community, grow your network. And if the opportunity presents itself for others to utilize your talents, great. But other than that, it's great to just have a strong network of people who are talented in many areas. Case in point, I'm in the process of looking at the catalog of Working Class Audio, of all these interviews, and looking to preserve them, looking to just make sure that I know where all the session files are, I know where the master files are, in case, and I I know I bring this up or have brought this up in the past, but if I were to drop dead tomorrow for some reason, I don't know, let's say I have a heart attack and I die, at this moment in time, it would take my family an extraordinary amount of effort to figure out where everything is. So my goal is to make sure that it's possible that it can be found, it can be identified. So I figured who better to talk to about that than former WCA guest Jessica Thompson. Jessica can be found at uh, jessicathompsonaudio.com. Fantastic resource for mastering, for archiving, for restoration, all things in those areas she's really great at. So I just sent her a message and said, hey, can we 
do a phone call, I'd like to discuss a few things with you. And, you know, while you don't necessarily have to go out to coffee or, or a meal or something, even just reaching out over the phone, having a, a good conversation over the phone can be beneficial. Jessica has been super helpful in helping guide me in the right direction with the right resources of what I should do to achieve this goal. So, so to conclude, just grow your network, help each other out. I think when you, when you follow that, that kind of path and help each other out, work comes, you know, it doesn't always have to be a very direct, what have you got for me lately kind of mentality, just connect and, uh, the work and the money at some point will follow. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Let's talk to Butch Vig here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Butch. Honored to have you on, and I look forward to our chat today. Thanks, Matt. I'm looking forward to it also. You grew up in Wisconsin, and 
I don't know if I'm saying it right. Is it Viroquois? <laughs> it's Viroqua. Yeah, it's Viroqua. a small town, uh, small town in Wisconsin, a, a Norwegian farming community. A Norwegian farming community in Wisconsin. And what kind of town is that to grow up in? Well, there's not a whole lot going on. <laughs> you have to find ways to entertain yourself. And uh, I was very lucky that my mom and dad were quite liberal. My mom was a music teacher, so I was exposed to music at a very early age. And uh, they always supported me sort of in my endeavors as I kept pursuing music and uh, started out playing piano. And then I gave that up in around fifth or sixth grade and started playing drums and then started playing in bands and got interested in recording. You know, I used to make mixtapes on my uh, little two-track. It was like a three-inch reel-to-reel. I'd put like Alice Cooper on there and Black Sabbath tunes and and mix them up. And then I found out that it had a... uh, a sound on sound button where you could stop the erase button or, or turn the erase button off so you could keep dubbing music onto the same piece of tape, which to me was incredible. I started just recording really bizarre, <laughs> making mashups, uh, basically, like layering Black Sabbath over Grand Funk Railroad and really crazy <laughs> stuff, but I, I, I totally loved it. Your dad was a doctor, is that correct? Yeah, he was a small town doctor. Just like a local local physician? Yeah, I think he and his twin brother delivered about 4,000 babies over their course of their career. And that's pretty much the entire population of Viroqua. <laughs> <laughs> Your mom being a music teacher, did you shy away from learning the fundamentals of music and music theory, or did you gravitate towards it because of her? Well, initially she got me playing piano in first grade and I liked it, but after about two years, I didn't really love the teacher that much. It was sort of that really strict Russian approach. You know, you'd, they'd wrap your knuckles if you made a mistake, and uh, I didn't really like it that much. But the great thing is I did play it for uh, five years, and I, so I learned a lot of fundamentals about chords and, and uh, technique and things like that, and, and I still carry that with me today. I wish I had not given up the piano completely because I'm, I'm kind of a hack player now, and I wish... I could still read music as, as good as I could then, and and my dexterity on the ivory was a little better than it is now. But it's like I said, I had enough of a fundamental approach to it that it still carries with me today. Interesting. And kind of fast-forwarding a bit to college, you went to University of Wisconsin. You studied experimental music. Yeah, and that was really uh, groundbreaking for me in some ways because up till that point, you know, everything that I sort of had been interested in was musical, you know, a lot of melody. The instructor at the electronic music studio, Dan Harris, was very much a mentor for me. He, on day one, said, I don't want any switched on Bach. And so (laughs) there was a tiny keyboard in the studio, and he took it and put it in the closet. And so we basically had to take oscillators and plug them into filters and, and use a patch bay to get sounds. So it was a giant wall of uh, modular Moog synths and then an ARP 2600. It was great. Uh, he also taught me how to edit tape and um, how important sound is, not just melody. So I got really fascinated with uh, recording ambient things. You know, I would take a Nagra a mono tape deck out and just walk around town and record things on uh, just with he- headset on. And then I'd take it back into the studio and edit it and then start running it through the synthesizers and get these crazy sounds. And uh, I absolutely loved it. What year are we talking about here when you were at uh, University of Wisconsin? Uh, this would have been around 1980. 
I went to school and then I dropped out and then I went back after a couple of years and went in, into film and com arts. And I got a degree in film, but I spent most of that time making music. Besides the four semesters at uh, electronic music, I made a couple independent films and a lot of the fellow students knew I was a musician. They asked me to do soundtracks for them. So I would go into the electronic music studio on a Sunday night after watching a rough cut of one of my fellow students' films. And um, I'd take in a six pack of PBR and a bag of ruffles and I'd come out in the next morning at 8 a.m. and go over to the studio and hand them their tape and go, here's your soundtrack. You know, it was crazy stuff, uh, sonically speaking. But they're always grateful just to have something um, interesting. And, and I, I just love doing it. That's really where I think I got the bug for wanting to be in a studio because I just, I loved it. I, I signed up for every free moment there was to get time in there. Now, you and your fellow garbage bandmate, Steve Marker, met at University of Wisconsin, if I'm correct. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. We uh, we met in Com Arts, and Steve had a four-track, a TAC four-track in his basement. And uh, that's kind of where Smart initially started. We would go out to uh, some bars and, and drink some cheap pitchers of beer and then go back and record you know, from like bar time until the sun came up. It was so much fun. And then Steve became a roadie for uh, the band I was in at the time. Uh, I had met Duke Erickson, who's in Garbage. Both Duke and Steve are uh, in Garbage with me. We needed a roadie. And so I asked Steve if he wanted a crew for us. And so he started working with the band. And uh, I, I don't really know, Matt, how we ever decided to open up a recording studio. I can't remember the conversation we have. It seemed like we just sort of fell into it. You know, like we moved as four track to my apartment. And then from there, we needed more space. So we rented some space in a warehouse and it just sort of kept growing, basically. There was there was never a eureka moment where I woke up and went, I'm going to open a recording studio. <laughs> you know, it just kind of happened. Do you think your playing in Spooner and needing to be recording had any impact on that ultimate, we'll call it a non-decision, to, to open smart? Was there anything about that experience that taught you, oh, we could do this ourselves, therefore, let's open a studio? Yeah, you know, I growing up, my mom played so much music for me. She was really into all sorts of styles of music besides Frank Sinatra and the Tijuana Brass. She loved the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And uh, to me, those bands were larger than life. They were rock stars. They were untouchable. And then when I was in college, I started getting interested in, in punk and new wave. And to me, I felt a kinship. Like if those bands can do that, I can do that. And the band at the time, Spooner, we started writing our own music. We were sort of a new wave garage pop band. And um, we wanted to go into a studio and uh, I always had an interest in it. So some of the very early recordings, you know, we just found cheap local studios in the Madison, Milwaukee, Chicago area. And we would go and record uh, singles and EPs and things like that. And uh, I always was sitting behind the board asking the engineer or uh, the producer, if we had one, um, what exactly they were doing. And, and I kind of started absorbing it all. It's interesting that you and Steve went on to form Smart rather than, I don't know the dynamics of, of your relationship at that time with Duke, but being that you ultimately ended up in a band with those guys, it's interesting that you didn't all three just form the studio together. Was there any rhyme or reason for that? I think Steve really had more of an interest in recording. And uh, Duke, you know, he was always more interested in being in a band and being a songwriter and not quite as interested, at least at that time, in the technical aspect of recording. But one of the reasons we started Smart was uh, selfish. Uh, like, I wanted to have a place where I could record my own music and where Spooner could make records. And, 
And in order to pay the bills, we had to go out and, and find local bands to come in and, and pay us uh, 15 or $20 an hour when we kind of first opened our doors. It was sort of self-serving to start a studio. I wanted to have a clubhouse, you know, a place I could hang out um, basically 24-7 and record music, whether it was my own or with my friends. Were you living at home at this point, or did you had you moved out from your parents? or? I uh, was living on an apartment on Morrison Street in Madison, which was right over Duke's apartment. We had a tiny little house, uh, or like a duplex, I guess it would be. He was on the bottom floor, I was on the top floor, right on, on Lake Monona. It was beautiful. And it was only about a five-minute walk to the studio on the east side, the, the warehouse space that we had rented. So in putting together the SMART, I know that SMART moved, you know, essentially you started, for all intents and purposes, you started in Steve's basement, then you moved to warehouse, and then eventually you moved to a, another location where you had a couple different studios. Is that correct? Yeah, it's funny. We got kicked out of the warehouse space, and, and honestly, it was a pretty crappy building. There was never really any acoustic design there. You know, the ceilings were all sort of floated ceilings with tile. You could hear what was going on in the spaces next to us. And a lot of the other clients in the building would complain. So we usually tried to record most of the loud stuff late at night, you know, go until the sun came up. And then one day we got a notice uh, that we were had 30 days to vacate. I think the landlord had got fed up dealing with us. They, they kicked everybody out of the building. There were a bunch of artists who were working there too. As luck would have it, the building kitty corner from us on East Wash was up for lease. It had been a, a bunch of things that had failed, um, like restaurants and a gift shop and things like that. Steve and I went over and looked at it, and it was funky, but it was kind of, uh, the, we just felt there would be a good vibe there. And, and we realized there were two floors, so we could set up a, a tracking room downstairs and a, a small lounge and a, and a like overdub mix room upstairs. So we signed a lease, and... I remember in the middle of, uh, it was like the first or second week of January, we called a bunch of our friends and at like midnight on a Sunday night, we literally took the gear apart, put it on these carts and pushed it across East Wash, which is like six lanes wide with cars going 50 miles an hour down it. Now, <laughs> there wasn't too much traffic on a Sunday night, but it was freezing cold. <laughs> and uh, literally, we, we, we didn't uh, pack things very carefully. We just disconnect it, throw it on the thing and then push it across the street and, and just just get it across the street we'll we'll figure out how to start setting it up tomorrow it was uh, it was kind of crazy and uh but like a lot of things that we did at smart we always enlisted a lot of the local bands to help us and then we would just you know pay them back with the uh, free studio time and that's kind of how we built the first studio too we had a uh, a lot of friends who were carpenters and painters and uh in some cases um acoustic designers you know engineers who helped us kind of update everything. And it, it, it was a proper studio. I mean, we floated the floors and built insulation on the walls and we wired things properly. It turned out really good, man. It was um, sort of by happenstance. It had one of the most intense drum rooms I've ever worked in. It was a very irregular shaped room with drywall. It had some carpeting on part of the floor, but oh my mm -hmm. God, when the drummers started playing, it was just explosive. And it was great for all the rock and punk bands that we were recording at the time. What was behind the name Smart? Well, we're not very proud of how we named the studio. Um, that came from Steve and me going to the Plaza Bar and drinking cheap beer and eating a Plaza burger. 
And then we'd say, let's get smart. And after we'd had enough beer, that meant that we were going back to his place to jam all night and record on his four-track T-hack. So getting smart meant getting pretty buzzed up on cheap beer. <laughs> so it's not, it's not, I don't know why it just had stuck. Let's get smart. Oh, uh, you know, we, we'll call it Smart Studios. Uh, there were probably a, a thousand better names that we could have chosen, but it, it stuck with us at the time. Did you and Steve rent the last incarnation of the building for the entire time, or did you eventually buy the building? No, we eventually bought it. Uh, once uh, I had some success with the Pumpkins and Nirvana and actually made some, uh, started seeing some royalty checks, um, the first thing we did was buy the building. Uh, and it wasn't very expensive. It, you know, it was on the east side, and, and real estate was pretty cheap there. So I think we maybe paid $90,000 for the space, which is pretty cheap. It, it made sense because then the, the work we did on it, it, it felt like we owned it. It, it. When we first moved in there, you know, we were reluctant to go really crazy, putting a lot of uh, money into the building that we didn't own. But once we uh, actually bought the building, then we had Russ Berger, a renowned designer from, I believe he lives in, in Texas. Um, he came up and worked with us and, and we upped the ante even more. We designed the control rooms better and put in better monitoring systems and uh, Russ was great because the building was funky. You know, we it wasn't something that was built from ground up with uh, a studio in mind, but Russ came up and looked at it and maximized every single space in that building like it was used for something useful. And uh, mm. he, he was great, man. He, he was invaluable to us at the time. Did that cause you to have to shut down for a period of time while Russ worked his magic? It did, and uh, it took longer than we expected. We actually worked with some clients at another studio in town as the construction schedule went over, which was awkward because uh, one of the places that we worked at was a jingle studio out on the Beltline, and it was so corporate. And, you know, I'd be bringing bands like Killdozer in there to record. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it, but we had to, you know, because uh, I think we had earmarked... Um, a couple months to get all the, the work done or maybe six weeks or two months, but it, it's, it took double that time. But luckily, as I said, the, the bands were cool. They just wanted to record. And I think as long as they knew that myself or Steve was going to be involved, they were okay if we recorded someplace else. I'd like to get a little granular about that time period and having had a couple studios and, and gone through the grind of, you know, the bands come in, you record anything and pretty much most everything to survive that trajectory of okay let's let's get the next band in and let's let's record and hopefully you're getting better along the way and hopefully the bands are getting better was that the case as far as smart and yourself did you see an improvement in the bands as well as yourself i don't know if you've seen the documentary on smart uh it's called the smart studio story there's a trajectory in the film Sonically, it starts out pretty lo-fi and gets better sounding through 90 minutes uh, as, as the music gets better. The, our engineering and producing got better. The bands got better. It's You can just sort of hear it. By the end of the film, the music is quite um, widescreen and just it sounds way better. And like you said, we had to take on anything to, to keep the studio filled. So I would do... Uh, a punk rock band, like on Monday and Tuesday, and uh, Wednesday, a heavy metal band would come in for a day. Thursday, a, a, a storyteller, a folk singer would come in, and after school, 
uh, like 20 kids would come in and sit around him and he would record. A lot of that stuff was done live, the two track. You know, they would they would play like in the ISO booth around the room. We'd put kids around and put mics up and I'd have to sort of figure out when to turn up the applause and turn it down and things like that. One day we had an opera singer come in with a harpist and she wanted to just do it live too. So I'd never recorded a harp before, <laughs> but I wanted it to sound grand. And at the time we had a plate reverb. So I just, you know, it, the, the studio was pretty dry sounding and, uh, you know, it had a little bit of natural ambience, but it didn't sound like an opera stage. So I just cranked tons of plate reverb on it and into her headphones. And she was like, oh my God, this sounds amazing. It <laughs> sounds like I'm at Carnegie Hall. And uh, well, it didn't sound like she was at Carnegie Hall, but it sounded pretty good. But all those sessions were very instrumental in uh, in teaching me and Steve like how to record things because I never went to any proper recording school, you know. And I, I when we first started Smart, I used to look at EQ magazine and Mix magazine, and I would go to the library and check out these books on recording, and and some of them were really um, funny because they were, I think written in like the 50s or early 60s and there'd be all these engineer pictures of engineers with like white lab coats on and tons of diagrams and formulas which I would just skip over but I tried to learn any way I could you know just to, to make my craft better and uh, like I said it was since I had no formal training there was a lot of trial and error and I would say there was probably more error than um, good results at an early stage. At any point I know that like as we say you're in the grind you're recording harpists one day, heavy metal bands the next day. Was there a point at which you became cognizant of your desires for career or did you have desires of like, well, you know, I don't want to record harpists and bands like I'm doing all the time. I'd like to do something a little bigger. Did you start to mentally transition to like, okay, we need to get a little smarter about this, not to, you know, excuse the pun of the of the studio, <laughs> getting smart. I don't know if we got smarter, but um, some of those scrappy bands we were recording started to get some attention. Uh, one of the first years South by Southwest existed, Steve and I flew down and we pressed up a hundred cassettes, like a sampler cassette with like maybe 10 bands on it of all sorts of styles of music. There was country and Western and rock and there were three or four punk bands and we just walked around and gave cassettes out. And we gave them all out really fast. And we got some work from that. A couple indie labels started sending bands their way. And um, Killdozer was released on uh, Touch and Go. And there's a record I did with them, 12 Point Buck, that really got a lot of great press. I don't know if you've ever heard that record, but it sounds god-awful. You know, it's like <laughs> slow and sludgy. And uh, Mike Gerald, the singer's voice, is just, he's kind of the voice from hell. But when we made that record, we sort of approached it like the White Album. Uh, it was the fourth record I had done with them, and they wanted to do something a bit more experimental. They didn't really have a lot of songs written when they came in the studio, so I did a lot of tape editing, and we did a lot of creative production. You know, it still sounds like Killdozer, but it was quite ambitious sounding at the time. Anyway, it got tons of press, and I remember going to South by Southwest, and someone asked me about Killdozer in an elevator at the hotel. There were all these musicians and stuff packed into the elevator. And this woman said, are you Butch Fig? Did you do Killdozer? And it's like, how does she even know that? And she goes, oh, my God, the Killdozer's amazing. This guy's an amazing producer. All these other musicians are looking at me like, who the hell is this guy? But we started getting work from that. And Killdozer is what led to Smashing Pumpkins, Billy Corgan calling, and Sub Pop calling, which is what led to working with 
Nirvana. So it was it was not by grand design that Steve and I were doing that. I think it was just by hard work and luck that we were making things sound better and people were noticing it. I, I think really that's how we started to get a lot of work with independent labels. That was actually one of my questions was, is how did you form these relationships with these indie labels like Touch and Go and Sub Pop? And it sounds like, you know, not to stop you from answering the question, but it sounds like it was the work that you did, like with Killdozer. Yeah, it really was. Uh, we never did a lot of advertising. Now, we would put little $25 ads in the local music paper in the back that you'd just say, want to record it. Come to Smart Studios for $15 an hour or whatever it was, $20 an hour. It was really word of mouth that uh, kept getting us more and more work. And if you looked at, at the trajectory of the studio, we opened Smart, I think, uh, we moved in that in that warehouse uh, December of 83 and opened our doors in January 84. And we were there until 87. When we moved in 87, we bumped up to a 16 track and then eventually a 24 track. But that's when we started getting more work with more indie labels like Mammoth and Twin Tone and Touch and Go and uh, Relativity and Alternative Tentacles and uh, Sub Pop and Frontier. And every time we would do those records, they were, some of those bands were getting airplay on um, college radio, like CMJ. And so more bands would hear it, and then we would get more calls. And so it just kind of snowballed, really. At the time, you and Steve were running smart. More and more work's coming in. Were you guys savvy with your money in terms of saving and reinvesting in the studio, but at the same time paying the bills, or was it a struggle? It was a struggle. You couldn't have picked two more stupid people to run a business. Like we had no business savvy and quite frankly, we're not interested in it. We had a good local accountant who kept our books balanced and would say, uh, you guys, you're short about $200 this month to uh, cover your bills. So we would, we'd have to hustle to find something to, you know, to, to come in and on a, on the last couple nights of the weekend to make enough money to pay all our, our bills. And I, I think a lot of studios have to do that. You know, you, can look at how many days you need to be occupied or, or, or have a have the studio booked. And, and a lot of studios, you know, sometimes it's uh, 60 or 70% of the time, which is, which is quite a bit. But we did invest everything we made back into the gear. Because when we started, the gear was so bad. We had a, one Space Echo. We had a bunch of Shure uh, and Unidyne microphones. Uh, Steve and I scoured uh, Goodwills and pawn shops. And we, we'd go to old churches and schools and ask them if they had any old recording gear laying around. And sometimes we would, they'd go, oh, you have this box of stuff. You can just have it. And we'd take it back to Smart. That's where we got our first DBX-160 compressor was from some church that was just laying in a box in the basement and they gave it to us for free or I mean I think maybe we paid 50 bucks for it or 25 bucks I can't remember but as we started making money Steve and I really took hardly any salary like we you know it was pretty cheap to live in Madison back then the place I lived in on Morrison Street was dirt cheap and for a while Steve moved out of his apartment just lived in the studio he threw all his clothes in the back boiler room where the where the reverb plate was and uh, he'd sleep in a sleeping bag on the floor. And about every two or three days, he'd say, hey, Butch, uh, can I come by your apartment and take a shower? And I'd say, by all means. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Um, 
Yeah, so but we we put everything back into buying gear as we kept expanding and getting more projects and and made it started making a little bit more money. There was always a wish list of things that we wanted to get, you know. And of course that never ends when you have a studio. I think you have to be careful and justify what you're going to spend your money on. Will this actually make us a better studio? We tried to not get caught up in the game like well, if we have an SSL, we'll get a lot more clients because they like working on SSLs. You know, we, we never wanted to sort of play that game. We, we always bought gear that we wanted to use that we thought would make records sound better, not uh, necessarily outside clients. Did you ever have any self-doubt about the future and what that was to hold before the success was to come with the Pumpkins and, and Nirvana? Well, I'm very lucky that I had success with uh, bands like the Pumpkins and Nirvana and that, you know, that led to... A lot of uh, alternative bands that I worked with, and then that allowed me to start Garbage, which we had no idea was going to have the success it had. But honestly, I think I would still be doing it um, whether I had that success or not. I I know I would be recording and and playing in bands and playing music because it's really the only thing I love to do, and uh, I have no hobbies. It's really sad. <laughs> I mean, I, I like film. I love the cinema, and and uh, I like to read. You know, I like to watch Packer games. Is that really a hobby? I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm not really that much of a sports guy, you know, I occasionally I'll play a round of golf, but basically I like to make music every single day in some form or another. So I think I would be doing it no matter what, because it's in my DNA. You meet Billy Corgan and you start working with pumpkins. I've talked to uh, other engineers who've worked with Billy and, you know, they talk about what they've learned from him because I mean, he, you know, by the time they had worked with him, he had a, a ton of experience under his belt at the time you two were working together. I'm to understand that you kind of found a kindred spirit in him and that you both like to get pay attention to the to the fine details and really really flush things out. Were there things that you learned from Billy along the way that from a recording or a production perspective that kind of, you know, where he turned you on to some new idea or or anything of that nature? Well, Billy's amazingly talented. I just saw him a couple weeks ago at uh, Dave Grohl's 50th birthday party, and he looked great and was in, he had an amazing cape on, <laughs> but he was in good form. And we, uh, we, we had some, we had, a, we had a great talk that night. I haven't had a chance to chat with him for quite a while. So he's very driven and he's an incredible musician, but he has a strong vision in terms of what he wants to do and what Smashing Pumpkins should be. And uh, the the one thing, he really is great with uh, guitar tones. I mean, we worked really hard on Gish getting guitars to sound good. And I was happy to have someone and a small budget to do that, a, a proper budget to do that. Most of the bands up until that point came into Smart and we would record uh, all the basics in one day. And then they come in the second day and they'd overdub all the lead guitars and the vocals. And the third day I'd mix. If I was lucky, I maybe had two days to mix. But I did so many records in three or four days that I, I can't even you know count them. Uh, there's probably thousands. And all of a sudden I got a guy who would spend all afternoon working on a guitar tone on one song. And uh, I loved it, you know, uh, because I always wanted to raise the bar. I wanted to learn more and I wanted things to sound great. I think that's one of the reasons that I got a lot of work uh, early on as a engineer and a producer. A lot of those punk bands didn't necessarily sound good, but I wanted them to be really focused. I wanted to hear clear tones on things. I still wanted to be messy and raw and have this crazy energy, but I wanted to hear everything really well. And I think that carried over into a lot of the projects I did. And uh, so when I met Billy and the Pumpkins, I mean, he, he pushed me 
to make things sound as good as they could be. And, um, and vice versa, I pushed him a lot in, in terms of the performances and how he sang. I, I really worked him hard on his singing. But we, we had a mutual respect for each other. And uh, um, I was very lucky because Billy can be really hard on people who work with him. But he was always, has always been very respectful with me. You know, it, we approached it from two equals who are trying to uh, push each other as far as they can. I have heard that about him, that he, is, that he can be difficult to work with. And um, I guess maybe he saw in you what, something he saw in himself because, you know, otherwise, you know, why did he give you that kind of space and respect that maybe he doesn't give others? Well, I think Billy is as talented as he is. I think he is quite vulnerable and insecure in some ways. And so I think he overcompensates for that with uh, just being really driven and focused. I think a lot of people do. So he, you know, when he would set the bar high, he trusted me that I would meet him there, you know, whether it was a performance, you know, the way the band played, how we mix things, especially on Siamese Dream. I mean, that that record took five months straight of recording. The last like two months, we worked seven days a week, um, like 14 or 15 hours a day because the, the, there was just so much we were trying to accomplish. That was before Pro Tools and, and there were so many tracks and layering and uh, it was it was just crazy how we put the record together. But I, I loved it. I mean, I, I was totally in my element. And, and I respected the band, especially Billy, because he gave me that um, green card to just go as far as I could go with it. And I think Siamese Dream still sounds really good today. I mean, it was, uh, like I said, it was done on analog tape. And wow, we went really crazy with some of the songs. Uh, poor Alan Mulder, we, we brought him into mix and we thought we'd have him for about two weeks. And we mixed for six weeks straight every day. <laughs> Alan finally had to leave on the last day. He, he was late to start another project, and he had to fly back to England. And Billy and I finished mixing the, the last song ourselves. I think it might have been Luna. And uh, I remember it was the same as when we finished Gish. We mixed Daydream, I think, and like on a Sunday night. And we printed the final mix like at four in the morning. We looked around, and we were both exhausted but elated. And and uh, the same thing happened at the end of Siamese Dream. It's just the two of us in the room. I you know hit stop on the tape recorder and went, we're done. And we looked at each other and went, oh, my God, what did we do? <laughs> um, but he, he went head-to-head -head with me, man, and uh, I love him for that. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. So in order of appearance, Gish happened, then you did Nevermind, then Siamese Dream, is that right? Correct, yeah. Did the success of Nevermind shape in any way what you ended up doing on Siamese Dream? I don't really think that Nevermind influenced... Siamese Dream that much. Uh, Nevermind was done really quick. That was recorded in 16 days. Nirvana had rehearsed for a long time before we went in the studio, and they were tight. That was after Dave Grohl had joined the band, and Dave's an amazing drummer. They had written really good songs, and um, 
they couldn't do more than uh, three or four takes. Kurt would lose interest. So I knew I had to find the right moment when to capture those songs. The record was done quick, and it and it's a really simple record. There's uh, maybe eight or nine tracks of drums, a couple tracks of bass, you know, Diana amp. There's Kurt's main guitar, and I had him overdub some extra clean guitars in the clean spots and, uh, and, and double track some of the heavy guitars. There's a few leads on the record. If I was lucky, I could get Kurt to do three or four vocals. Sometimes he only did two. And I was usually able to make double tracks out of those in the courses. And then he sang some harmonies and, and uh, Dave sang some harmonies. Dave's voice sounded a lot like Kurt in some ways. But that record is really simple. Unlike Siamese Dream, which was some in some instances 48 tracks or 72 tracks on tape. But some of the songs had 100 tracks that I'd have to, you know, I'd have like 30 guitars I would submix down to stereo on another reel. It just got crazy. I, I had to make Alan Mulder these mix maps, like put these big pieces of paper because sometimes the intro, say track 19, would have a clean guitar. And then in the first verse, another guitar sound, but we'd have to pan it left with a different EQ. And then in the second chorus, another sound would come in there, but it'd be panned right with a different EQ. And it was, uh, it was quite complicated to mix. Uh, and uh, like I said, now it's easy with Pro Tools to do that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, the, re the records were quite different sounding. Obviously, yeah. um, Siamese Dream is much more layered and, and much more produced than Nevermind. Much, yeah, much more dense for sure. Um, I, I think my question more relates to not necessarily uh, the sound of Nevermind, but any lessons learned or l anything like that that you learned on Nevermind that changed or shaped your approach to Siamese Dream. It, it's hard for me to, to be objective about that. Uh, the, the thing is, like from a psychological standpoint, doing Nevermind, I realized I had to get things really fast. Mm. And it was the opposite with Siamese Dream. I, I knew that I could spend my time, and in some cases it was important to do that. You know, I was lucky. Both those records have amazing drummers. Dave Grohl is incredible. He's one of the best rock drummers I've ever worked with. Jimmy has a whole different thing. He's he's a vibe master, and he can, he's can he got this swing and an incredible feel. And the way he, him and Billy play, they sort of have this push-pull. They sort of push the front of the bar a little bit, and then they pull back the back end of the bar. So the music, even if it's straight 4-4 four, four time, it kind of gets this sway. It's hard for me to describe, but that's what they do. And it's important as a producer to understand that when you're producing bands. Like you have to look at what their strengths are and try to make them even better, you know. And if they have weaknesses, you want to try and cover those or, or make those weaknesses stronger. And they're, they're two completely sort of different bands in terms of how they feel, you know, and just in terms of how the tracks feel. But we did, uh, never mind, at Sound City, and uh, that, they had a great Neve console there. And uh, when we went, and I love working on that so much. When we went to do Siamese Dream, I wanted to work on a Neve too. And we found a, a Neve in a, a studio outside of uh, Atlanta, Triclops. And uh, and it was a great sounding board also. So that, if anything, that's that's the one thing I, I wanted sonically to have a, a Neve as part of the imprint for a Siamese Dream. Once Nevermind hit, I mean, there's no doubt that that pretty much changed your life. I mean, you kind of went from working with bands like Killdozer and you and Steve struggling to pay the bills at the studio to then all of a sudden, you know, the royalty checks start to come in. Was that any way challenging? Well, it was. The great thing is it changed my life. I think anybody who worked on Nevermind closely, they will tell you that Nevermind profoundly changed their life. But for the better, I mean, 
the, the funny thing is the phone at Smart started ringing off the hook. I think that this happens all the time in the music business when something is successful. A lot of other labels or publishers or managers or artists chase it. They think they can they can do that same thing. I started getting calls from labels and publishers and managers to produce acts that didn't sound anything like Nirvana, but I think they thought I could make them sound like Nirvana, like mm. blues artists. And um, uh, there were a couple of heavy metal bands that were sent. There were some like folk singers that were sent. And it, it was funny. I mean, if you look at what happened post uh, Nirvana and, and Pearl Jam and Pumpkins, you know, alternative radio was sort of dominated by those kind of uh, rock bands for you know a, a good four or five year period before hip hop kind of started to dominate. I, I found it flattering, but I also found it annoying. And, you know, I, I did a lot of records in that time period. I worked with, uh, oh, God, tons of artists. Um, but I started to uh, to work with some acts that were not so uh, grunge-oriented, you know, he- with heavy guitarists. I, I worked with a singer-songwriter, Freddie Johnston, because I fell in love with his songwriting. And while a lot of people who knew me at the time thought, that's really weird you're working with someone like that, if they knew my history of growing up and the music I listened to and, and, and some of the, you know, even the, some of the music that Spooner made, it, it, Freddie's music wasn't too far off based from that. So, but I just fell in love with his songs. And so that record sounds completely different than um, Siamese Stream or, or Nevermind. And that's around the time when I started working with samplers because I was getting bored of guitars bass and drums. I, I swear to God, I'd done a thousand records by the time uh, Nevermind and Siamese Dream took off. And I, I was looking to try and expand my wings. And I became enamored with Public Enemy. So Steve and I bought a couple samplers. We bought a Kai S1000 and a Kurzweil K2500. And uh, that opened up a whole lot of doors for me and, and eventually led me to forming Garbage. One thing that in doing my research before I talk to you is, you know, I know Steve and Duke and Shirley and, and yourself are in the band, but I did see that Eric Avery, former Jane's Addiction bassist, is in the band now or was in the band? He's been our touring bassist for about three records, no, four records, I guess. Uh, our first two tours, uh, we toured with Dan Schulman, a bass player in LA here, who's, who's a good friend of ours still. And then he got married and wanted, he, he just didn't want to have the touring life anymore. Um, but he was always just a hired sideman. He, you know, he'd play on the records and stuff, but uh, he, he wasn't a, a proper member of the band. And the same with Eric. Eric's a, a bass player who, who just comes on board when we're recording and uh, when we uh, go on tour. But uh, Eric is amazing. I mean, he's uh, one of the coolest dudes you will ever meet. But he makes me sound way better as a drummer because <laughs> he's just got a really good feel and a really tough way that he plays. And uh, I mean, he makes the whole band sound better, honestly. But he's also a super sweetheart. And, and that's part of uh, working with people, working with musicians is, is how you get along. You know, if you're especially if you're going to be cooped up in a van or a backstage, you know, every single night for months on end. Um, you want to be hanging with people who are cool and uh, in EA, as we call them, is super cool. It's all about the hang, as they say. Yeah, you don't want any vibe crushers. That's a, that's garbage slang. Uh, vibe crusher, man. We don't like vibe crushers. Uh, and over the years, we've met lots of vibe crushers in the music business. <laughs> we have a tendency to try and avoid them. Now, you moved ultimately from Madison to Silver Lake. I did. I 
I moved out here uh, after meeting my future wife, Beth, who, uh, when I was making Siamese Dream, uh, she worked for Virgin Records. And I met her, and um, we became friendly and slowly sort of started dating. And it took us a while to kind of develop a full-time relationship. But um, that's the reason I moved out here, really. Part of it was, I think, Shirley you know, it was from Scotland and we all sort of holed up in Madison, but Steve and his family moved to Colorado and Shirley uh, moved out here to, to California. And I was like, I think I'll move to LA also. Part of it's because Beth at the time had um, got promoted to A&R at DreamWorks and she'd signed Nelly Furtado. And so she needed to go into DreamWorks office every day. And I was like, well, I can work in studios out in LA. You know, that's totally cool. So we um, packed up our stuff and, and moved out Her, I packed up my stuff and moved out to LA um, unfortunately, I think that's sort of what was one of the starts of the demise of smart studios that both Steve and I were really not working there. You know, the studio just wasn't getting worked at as much with, with us gone. So uh, that's that's one of the nails in the coffin of smart. I mean, a lot of it also was just changing technologies and, and business climate and things like that. But uh, I love Silver Lake. It's a cool neighborhood. Um, I'm sitting in my home studio here. Um, I have an amazing view of the lake, and it's just a glorified bedroom studio. It's not really soundproofed or uh, too much um, uh, acoustic work on it, but it works for me. And uh, I, I do. I just finished Silver Sum Pickups record. We just mastered it last week, and uh, we did a lot of it here at my studio. I'm not tracking drums, but we did a lot of overdubs and vocals, and I did some mixing and editing, and and the record turned out great. We can't not talk about Billy Bush. So Billy came into the picture around garbage time, or was that before garbage? We hired Billy as our guitar tech on the first garbage tour, and um, we just hit it off immediately. He's a great guy. He's funny and really smart. He's, he's a nerd. I mean, he's really good with uh, all things audio, technically speaking, and uh, but he's just got a great vibe, too. He's super chill. So we finished the tour. We went on, you know, we, we were only going to tour for like two months in the first garbage record. And then we ended up touring almost 16 or 17 months all over the world. And uh, we went in to start the second album. And a friend of ours let us borrow a house up in Friday Harbor, this island north of Seattle. We went up there for about a month um, to do some writing session. And I was really interested in, in Pro Tools. Billy, being a computer nerd, helped us set up Pro Tools. And I told him, why don't you come out, uh, to Friday Harbor for a couple of weeks and get us up and running, and then you can split and, and go, you know, do whatever you want. Well, we never let him leave. Once he got <laughs> there, he's been in garbage 365, 24 hours a day. If I need something, I text or call Billy. And uh, but he's great because he he I've worked with him as a producer. I mean, he engineers most of the stuff that I do. And he understands how I like to work, but he also understands how garbage likes to work, both in the studio and how we tour. And we have a real sixth sense in terms of um, where we're going, you know, uh, whatever the project is, you know, whatever needs to be done. And uh, that's something that that develops over time. But it's, uh, you know, it's it's a good thing to have, you know, when when uh, you don't have to second guess um, the person you're working with. You just you really trust them in terms of what's what you're going to do next. Which leads me to the question: So did did Billy move as well? I just I. In my mind, I'm thinking, oh, well, how come Billy didn't just stay and run Smart Studios? But there's obviously more layers to that onion than I realize. Yeah, Billy moved out here to Los Angeles, too. He uh, is from Kansas, and he also lived in Dallas for a while. So he kind of called Dallas his home base for many years. 
But then when he when we came to record the second garbage record, he and I rented an apartment uh, not too far from the studio, and then he he eventually rented his own apartment there. But yeah, he he I think he realized um, he wanted to also be able to work on his own accord, and uh, he started a studio in Atwater Red Razor where I do a lot of work. I, I did a lot of Silver Sun pickups there and garbage works there all the time, and he does a lot of work on his own producing and especially mixing. He's been doing a lot of a great mixing lately and uh but he always wanted to have his own place like that and and quite frankly it, it's once i closed down smart i toyed with the idea of really building up my home studio here isolating it you know putting up proper walls building a tracking room or finding a space in the neighborhood here to do that but i didn't really want to have that kind of overhead or, or that kind of worry after running a studio at madison for 30 years i just wanted to you know, I can record here anytime I want, and it's really low key. But if I want to go to a proper studio, I can either go to Billy's place or I can go to any number of amazing studios out here in in uh, Los Angeles. So that's kind of the direction that I took. What role have managers played in your life, and when did they enter, and what have you learned from that experience? Well, I never had a manager as a producer until Nevermind happened, and. As the phone is ringing off the hook regarding publishers and label, you know, A&R people for artists, I also started getting calls from managers who handled producers. And there were a lot of them who wanted to work with me. And a lot of them were big names who I'd heard of before. But I kind of didn't really want to get caught up in in moving to New York or L.A. A, a, a bunch of them said, oh, we can set you up with a room, your own room in Los Angeles, and you'll be working, picking and choosing whatever projects you want to do. Or the same in New York. Or I also had an offer to move to London. And uh, I just wanted to kind of keep making music on my own terms at Smart. So I turned down all the management offers at the time. But then I got a call from Shannon O'Shea and Meredith Cork, two uh, uh, women from uh, London, they had a, a company called SOS Management, and uh, Shannon asked if I wanted to do some remixes because she knew I had been working with samplers. And she said, you know, I'll just commission a project. We don't have to sign any contract. If I throw something at you and you like it, I'll, I'll set up a budget and get you the tapes and help you orchestrate it. And uh, and we'll just do one-offs, you know, whenever you, if there's something you're interested in. And um, I said, that sounds cool. And right away, she got me a bunch of remixes with... Um, Depeche Mode and Nine Inch Nails and House of Pain and Beck and U2 and Alanis Morissette. The, 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 I started getting a lot of work for remixes. And uh, that was really fun because uh, I didn't do club mixes. When I would do a remix, I would get the a copy, uh, a clone of the Master 24-track or 48-track tape, and I would pretty much erase all the music except for the vocals and then and then record all new music. And that became the template for Garbage, really, those, those remixes. And then when Garbage started, Shannon and uh, Meredith sort of by default became our managers on the first Garbage record. Ah, interesting. So today, if if a label or a manager of a band reaches out, do they end up going through them to book you as a producer? Or Well, I no longer work with them as, uh, as management. I, and I don't have a manager at, at this current moment. Um, I've always kind of handled decisions on my own. And I've got people who I trust to help me if I need um, studio coordination, you know, booking, uh, working out, getting gear shipped, all the details that go with making a record. I've got an infrastructure on me of people who I call when I need those, when I need help with those things. 
And I have a really good attorney I've been working with for 30 years, Bill Barrel, who kind of oversees all of the contractual stuff and is really good at looking out for me. So I don't really feel like I need someone to oversee the day-to-day things I do, you know, in the studio. Like I said, if I, if I need help, um, like if I'm doing a string section, I've got people I can call to help me organize the string section. But I don't have someone who I work with, uh, you know, uh, on a constant basis. It's just kind of as a uh, as need basis. Yeah. Plus, plus it helps to be located close to Los Angeles to get all of those, you know, resources that you need to to marshal in in the case of a string section or any of that stuff. Oh, there's a great infrastructure out here. There are so many talented people. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I moved out here. Uh, it's it's easy to make records out here when there's still a lot of really great sounding rooms, um, despite how, you know, how many rooms have closed over the last 10 years and just tons of talented people. So whatever you need, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to find out here in Los Angeles. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Uh, and this brings me to my question these days in, in the age of streaming and you're obviously you're a big name producer. We, we can say that. Are points relevant in this day and age? Like if you were to do a new record with a band that you know somebody's going to push is that the same as it was for you as in the days of Nirvana and the Pumpkins? Well, obviously, um, you know, music sales have gone uh, into streaming and it's really hard to make hefty royalty checks from streaming. It doesn't matter how big you are as a band. Uh, I'm lucky that some of the bands I've worked with in recent years, like uh, Foo Fighters or Green Day, whatever, I would still see royalty checks, but um, they're, they're still much smaller than they were 15 or 20 years ago. I think if you have a million streams on Spotify, you maybe make four or $5,000, which, you know, is, that, that's okay to get a check like that, but that's a lot of streams. <laughs> Most <laughs> bands are not going to get a million streams, you know, so, but it's the wave of the future. I mean, that that's currently how people are consuming music. So I think everybody out there who's trying to make a living has to adapt and, uh, you can do that by finding other ways to monetize your music, and a lot of this, a lot of that is through syncs or licensing. And um, as tough as that may seem, there's also such a demand for content out there now with with Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and all the streaming that there's a lot of avenues for music. And I mean, because music's everywhere; it's in every single TV show, whether it's songs or, or scores. There's every possible jingle and ad that comes up. So uh, there are uh, garbage has done a lot of licensing, and a lot of other acts that I work with have done a lot of licensing. 
and then touring live, but that's that's a whole nother thing. It, it can be expensive and really draining physically and mentally to spend a lot of time on the road every single year. But I know for a lot of artists, that is still their bread and butter to go out and tour, you know, to play in front of a live audience. Granted, you, you've been very fortunate in your life in that you were able to be successful at a time in the music industry where points were, you know, still a very viable thing and record sales themselves were a viable thing. What would be your advice to a producer or engineer who wants to be successful or at least just pay their bills on a regular basis in this day and age? What would, if you, knowing what you know now, what would you do? Well, it's interesting you say that because I've been doing some teaching uh, at a couple of the music colleges around here. Um, in the recording programs, I usually go in for a day and I do these seminars. We'll Sometimes I'll take in a session and we'll break the session down. Uh, you know, go through it uh, sort of piece by piece and talk about the mix process or whatever it is. At the end, I always have a Q&A with the students and they always, you know, ask me, how do we get a job? What are we going to do? And one of the things I say is to try and be fairly diverse. Don't just decide I'm going to be a hip hop producer or I'm going to record punk rock bands or pick one thing. I mean, I think it's smart to sort of be a jack of all trades, you know, learn about live music. Um, learn about film music and TV scoring. Um, uh, if someone asks you to record a demo, just say, yes, I can do that. You know, I think, you know, when we started smart and, and pretty much said yes to every single thing that walked in, including, I, I used to do live sound mixing back in the day. I didn't like it very much, but someone would go, Hey, can you mix us at this gig? I go, sure. You know, and even though at the time when I started doing that, I didn't have a clue how to set up a PA or, or to properly live mix. But there's a lot of avenues out there uh, in music. And also just looking at in the business and marketing, you know, there, there, it doesn't necessarily have to be from an audio standpoint, you know, to be creative. Uh, and so I think it's good to, to know a lot of those things. It's good to know how to use Logic and Pro Tools. It's good to understand how people consume music, how, how records are mastered, you know. Um, I, I just tell them to try and be really diverse and, and say yes to every sort of opportunity that comes up because you never know when something's going to click, you know, where that path will take you. What are your thoughts on work-life balance and trying to keep everybody uh, happy in the business world and music world as well as the family life? Well, it's tough. It, it is tough. Um, when you start out, the hours you put in can be insane and it's really hard on relationships. When I started Smart, I think I was averaging between 80 to 90 hours, sometimes 100 hours a week, you know, seven days a week. It would be 16, sometimes 18-hour days. Just we'd finish at 2 or 3 in the morning. I'd have to come in and set up for a session like at 8 or 9 a.m. the next morning. That takes a toll on you. Uh, it, really, it really does. Uh, I'm very lucky that my wife, Beth, was in the music business, so I think she understood, you know, exactly how uh, – demanding that the lifestyle can be. As I've gotten older, I try to set limits for the amount of time I will spend in the studio. And I sort of like to start early. I like to get in the studio at 10 or 11 and and wrap up by like 7 p.m. at night so I can go home and, and have a late dinner, but still see my daughter to bed every night, at least when I'm home, you know, when I'm working in Los Angeles. But I, you know, I, I read an interesting interview. I can't remember the hip hop producer's name, but he said there's no way that he, he he's very successful. He, he works with uh, Imagine Dragons and, and a handful of other 
uh, amazing artist. And and when he started out, he said, uh, there's no way I could have ever done this if I had a relationship and had to devote a lot of time to the relationship. He said he had didn't have relationships for years because all he did was work in the studio. And um, there's a truth to that. You know, like you sort of have to be willing to sacrifice your personal life for your craft. Hopefully, as you get more talented and start to get some regular work and some regular clients, you can adjust that and try to get some balance because uh, I think as you get a little bit older, it's important to have some of that balance. You have to be able to step away from the work in order to appreciate it. You know, if you're immersed in it 100% all the time, I think you can start to lose perspective. And um, there's nothing like when I see my daughter, I, I forget about the mix I was working on. I'll clear my head and I'll listen to it the next day. And then I have a much better objective opinion of, oh, you know what? The vocals don't sound right in the chorus or whatever it is. Um, but having a perspective is good. And I think part of that is maintaining a healthy personal life. Butch, it's been amazing having you on. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. What a pleasure. And uh, I hope to meet you in person someday. I, I try to come down to LA more often. Right on, Matt. It was a pleasure talking to you, uh, all things music and audio and geeking out on uh, the, the nerd aspect. Uh, I, I love it, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Okay, cool. Thanks, Matt. Adios. Take care. Butch Vig here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for being with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right. Pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. I want to thank Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme music, Anne-Marie Plo for editing the show, and Chuck Smith for his lovely announcer's voice. Spread the word. Check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com. Check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.